Turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Haggai. Haggai in two chapters, in four words of prophecy that we'll take six weeks to look at, shows us what it is to, to hear the word of God in the midst of uncertainty and chaos. You may remember at the beginning of 2020, in our sermon series, we opened to the book of Ezra. That period in the Old Testament when God's people had been in exile but were brought back. Brought back by God and God sent provisions for the rebuilding of the temple. And yet it was a chaotic and uncertain time. Now in January and February, we as a church considered what does that mean for us to prioritize the ministry and mission of God. And yet at that point we, we couldn't have guessed what March and April would bring. And so it's useful for us to return to that period of uncertainty in biblical history. This time, rather than hearing it through the, the announcement of this is what happened in Ezra, we're hearing and this is what the Lord says. We're, we're back in the same time period, but listening now to a prophet. A prophet who can speak to us about living in uncertain times. A prophet who offers us the hope of salvation through God's promise and provision. Listen as I read. I'm only going to read just a few verses this morning. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses? while this house remains a ruin? Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we admit the struggle to, to listen, and so we ask for your clarity, a clarity of thought as your word is preached, but also as we hear it. Lord, that in the, the chaos and the busyness of life, we would be willing to settle and listen. Listen to you speak to us today. We need your message of hope, your message of promise. And so we come today praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness. It's indifference. These poignant words from Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner who helped expose the world to the horrors of the Nazi death camps are words that still matter to us today. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Words that help the world be honest and look at the tragedy of the human heart that would lead to the death camps. Words that help us even now as we pursue justice locally and globally. And yet we see the tragedy not only at the community level, we see it in our relationships. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Children who don't care what their parents say. Or spouses who have stopped even arguing because, you know what, that's too much effort. And silence is so much more painful. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. See here, in the 6th century B.C., 
the prophet Haggai challenges the apathy and indifference of God's people, of the church. The church who says, well, no, 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 now's not the right time. It's not really convenient for me. And so the word comes to us with a challenge then to us. But first, it is useful for us to see the historical context. You, if you were with us in January and February, have some of that context from, from the book of Ezra. But on the, the timeline of Old Testament history, you have the, the pinnacle of, of David called to be king. King over the, the, the whole of the promised land. His son Solomon builds the temple, but then you see the sin in the people of God, in their leaders, as they decline, as they run from God, as they reject God. And so God brings the punishment through the armies of Babylon, sending the people into exile, taken from the promised land. But then God raised up a king, not the king whose name we see in verse 1, a king who came before him, a king whose name we read in the book of Ezra, King Cyrus. King Cyrus took over the empire. The Babylonians were no more, and now King Cyrus reigned, and he decided to send the Jewish people, the people of God, back to the promised land. And miraculously, he did more than just give them permission to go. He actually gave them provisions to go. And so here, even in the opening words of this book, we're reminded of God's protection, God's provision for his people. Look with me how we, we get not just the, the general time frame, we get the specific day on which this prophecy takes place. Yes, other longer books give us more dates than Haggai gives us, but in terms of dates per number of verses, Haggai dates every one of his prophecies. So we, have, we have more specific timelines, partly to remind us that this is a real man speaking to real people, but also pointing us to the radical context in which they're living. Look again at verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. God is now speaking to his people. And who is he speaking to? Well, their names are given to us in verse 1. Now, the book will make explicit that this is a prophecy given to the whole people. And these two are leaders as representatives of the people. But what are the names? What are the names of the two men? Look again at verse 1. It's Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, again, from the book of Ezra, we can be reminded of who these men are. Zerubbabel. He's the son, we're told here, of Shealtiel, and we're told his job. He's the governor of Judah. He's the one appointed by the king to have authority of the king here in the land. But, but why is his name important to us? Oh, because you need to know not only who his father was, who was his grandfather, Jehoiachin, the last king of Judah. He is the grandson of the king who should be reigning in Jerusalem. He is the descendant of David, the one to whom God gave the promises. This is Zerubbabel, to whom the word of God comes. And Joshua, what is Joshua's job? We're told he's the son of Jehozadak, but, but the importance here is that he is the high priest, the one appointed by God to stand in the place of the people and mediate for them with God. He stands in God's place to, to bring to bring the, the words of forgiveness, but he stands in the place of the people in bringing sacrifice. So even here in the, the context, we're, we're reminded of God's provision. And the command is given to them that they must rebuild the temple. The provisions had actually been sent by Cyrus. And if you read the opening chapters of the book of Ezra, you'll, you'll remember here that, that by this point, in the second year of King Darius, that's the year 520 B.C., we can 
pinpointed on the calendar. But that's about two decades since the people have come back into the land. They were sent by Cyrus in the year 539, so it's, it's almost two decades that they've, they've had to come. And yes, they've gotten some work done when they first got back. They rebuilt the altar so that sacrifices could be brought. And they began to rebuild the temple, but all that's there is the foundation of the temple. But the need for the temple is obvious. This is the place where God will meet with his people. This is the place where blood is shed so that sins can be forgiven. The temple is the place where God shows up in his presence with his people. And so the command of God comes that they must rebuild the house of the Lord. And you see the way in which the command is given to us. I mean, look with me again at verse 1, the description of God's name. Now, in your Bibles, the Lord is often described to us, and it's always with a capital L, but sometimes the rest of the letters are lowercase. That's just a title, a description of who God is, that he is sovereign. But here, in, if you look in verse 1, our English tra Bibles translate it with all capital letters. That's to remind us that this is not just a title God has. This is his very name. He is Yahweh. He is the God of the covenant, the God who enters into relationship with his people. And so he is the Lord. But verse 2 tells us not only is he Yahweh, the God who is in relationship with his people, but, but verse 2 expands that. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the God of hosts, the one with armies that come behind him, the heavenly host in, in his battalions to fight for him. He is the God who by this point in the, the Bible is made clear that has absolute, overwhelming, sovereign power. There is nothing and no one who can stop this God. And yet, that might not be what the people would believe. I mean, look around at the mess. We're barely putting our houses together. The temple of the Lord is in ruins. God doesn't appear all that great. And yet when God chooses to speak, he gives them his name, that he is the God who is with them. He is Yahweh. He reminds them that he is the God with absolute sovereign power. He is Yahweh Almighty, the Lord Almighty. And then it, it, it's almost so commonplace in the Bible that we would miss it. But, but twice in these three verses, we hear this phrase, the word of Yahweh came through the prophet. Haggai is the first of the prophets to speak after the return from exile. There has been silence from God. Yes, God has spoken while they were in exile, but there has been silence in the years. It's been almost, it's been more than 50 years since the temple was destroyed. Is there any word from God? And, and it, 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 it almost sounds commonplace if you've read the Bible frequently, but remember what a, what a shock and surprise this is. The word of Yahweh came through the prophet Haggai. And while we're going to spend six weeks here in the book of Haggai, that's about all you're going to learn about him. I'm not going to be able to tell you more of his history or his story because that's all we're given. Even when Ezra announces to, uh, him to us, we're just told that he's the prophet Haggai or Haggai, God's prophet. When his name is used, it's just given that he is the messenger of God. We don't know how long he's been living here. Was he one of the people that was left behind and he, he grew up here in the land or did he come back with the exiles? Is he old enough to have seen the former temple or is he young enough that he, he never saw the temple before? 
Has he been ministering for a while and we just have these words here? Because all of these prophecies take place within just a handful of months. Does he die shortly after? Or is he a young man who, who speaks much more, but, but this is the center of his message that's recorded not just for the people then, but for us now? Because the importance is not on the man Haggai, it's on the message he brings, because whose words are they? The words of Yahweh. It is God who is speaking. And, and yet, as 21st century people, we are, we are tempted to dismiss this as an ancient book of fairy tales. I mean, we're, we're too smart, we're too sophisticated to trust something like this. And, and, the, and the problem for us as modern people is that our skepticism doesn't even stop there. Our skepticism is, is so great that we, we don't know who we can trust. People that we used to be able to trust have done dumb things, and so can we trust them now? Are they authoritative? We don't, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. And, and worse, even when we look at ourselves, we see how unreliable we ourselves can be. How we disappoint those around us, how we don't even meet our own expectations. And so then these words come to us as, yes, a shock to those of us that don't want to listen to anyone else's authority but also then comfort that Yahweh, the God of the universe, would actually speak. He would come to us to tell us what we need to hear, that he wants us to, to listen to him, to be in relationship with him. See, there's comfort for us here, even in the commands of God. God has broken his silence and is now willing to speak. And yet the tragedy is here that what does God do? He exposes the complacency of the people. Because look again at verse 3. What does the Lord Almighty say? Well, now we have God speaking to us the words God's people have spoken to God. We have God giving us clarity on, the, on what the people of the time were thinking. Look at, look at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say... The time has not yet come for the house, for the Lord's house, to be built. I mean, see, they, they, they understand the command. They're not arguing theologically that, that the temple isn't important. They're, yes, we get it. The temple's important. It's just not that important. I mean, we've got other problems happening here. And in some sense, we're, we're tempted to, to side with the people. God puts them on, on trial. He says, these people say the time has not yet come. And we want to say, yeah, but, but kind of look around. This is a really bad time to try and rebuild a temple. I mean, at, at best, maybe a third of the, the, the people who, who had left have come back. I mean, there aren't enough people here to get the job done. And, and worse, it's a, it's a time of, of international turmoil. I mean, we don't, I mean, the, I mean the, the king who had given us permission to be here, I mean, he's gone. I mean, his, his descendants don't reign anymore. I mean, can we, can we trust what, what's really happening in the world? And, and look around, the, the city is in ruins. I mean, we barely have enough to, to get by. And, and, and actually, if you look back at the sixth month and you put it on the calendar, this is the time of harvest. We've got other things that have to happen. This is a really inconvenient time to get this work done. And so we're tempted to, to sympathize with them. And yet God says, no, no, no. Now is the time to build the house of the Lord. He puts the people on trial. These people say it's not the right time. And, and maybe this is an encouragement or a challenge to us today. Those of us who feel like we're in a time of waiting, uncertain of what's going to come next, I mean, if you've asked me in recent weeks, when are we going to be able to do this again as a church? 
My answer to you has been, I don't know. When can we relaunch this ministry? I don't know. I, I, I wait for updates from the governor. You do as well. If, if you're a, an educator, then you're trying to figure out what comes next. If you're somebody who, who runs a small business, and you're trying to figure out how do, how do you survive. And so, so, so many of the things we, we are asking right now are, are, are just questions where we have to shrug our shoulders and say, I, I don't know. And so we wait. But what are we waiting for? I mean, as a church, the command is given right here to build the Lord's house. And you might think, okay, well, I mean, I'm not an Old Testament Jew, so I don't have to rebuild the temple. There aren't any major construction projects that have to take place at the church, so, like, I'm off the hook. They better get their act together, but me, I'm fine. And yet, what is God calling us to do to build his kingdom? Because what is the temple of the Lord? It's the place where people could gather to hear from God. People could bring sacrifice. You and I have the great hope of Jesus to take to the world. And so we should be investing our lives in the kingdom of God in his purposes. And yet, some of us feel like we're just waiting. As students, maybe you're waiting for the, the next school year to get started. You're trying to figure out, is the next school year even going to start? Or you're thinking, I'll, I'll wait to get serious about my faith, to, to, really, to really invest in what God wants, you know, when I, when I get my diploma. Or, or, you know, it might not actually be handed to me, but, but virtually, when I get my diploma, I'll, that, that's when I'll, when I'll do something. Or maybe as a, a young adult, beginning your career, you think, well, once I'm settled into my job, then I'll have time to serve. Then I'll be able to look for opportunities to invest in God's kingdom, but, but I've got to get this done now. Or maybe even as adults, we think, you know, once I, you know, once, once I get through this next phase, then I'll have some more time. I mean, then I can take seriously the commands of God, to obey God, to follow after God, to, to really invest in the kingdom of God. But, but I've, I've got to get that next promotion before I can sort out my priorities. Or maybe you're a parent with little ones at home, and you feel like you barely have any time to get through the day, and you think, I, I mean, Kevin, I don't, I don't know what you're asking of me. I literally don't have a free moment. I, I have to, to run and hide just to, just to get a, a second alone. And you're, you're telling me I, I have to do more? And so you might think, I don't even have time now to read the Word of God on my own. All right, then read it with the little ones who are in your presence. Maybe the season you're in now is a season in which you're reading a children's Bible so that the little ones who are there in your presence, in your charge, in your care are the kingdom of God the ones who need to hear the message, maybe your neighbors and friends that you connect with, that you, that you interface with online are the ones that need to hear about God's kingdom. And maybe for all of us waiting in the midst of a pandemic, we're just waiting for this to be over. Maybe we're tempted to just say, let's, let's wait and figure it out then. Now is not the right time to try and do anything big for God. That's what the people of God are saying here. The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. But right now is the time for displaying the glory of God. Right now is the time for investing in the kingdom of God. Right now is the very moment at which you can say, yes, God's kingdom matters to me more than the things of this world. And so it's a chaotic time, and, and maybe it means that, the, that in the indefinite timeline of the current crisis in which we face, you say, okay, I'm not going to wait for this to end before I change my priorities. I'm going to say God's kingdom matters to me more than the things happening around me. 
And so maybe it means that right now you can invest your time in tutoring a student. Connect with Urban Promise and say, hey, during the summer when they're trying to keep students connected, I want to build a relationship now, even doing it virtually, so that I can help one child as he or she moves forward to the future. Maybe it's a matter of of connecting with the international ministry through RUF, our campus ministry at the University of Delaware, and saying, hey, right now is a moment where I could spend time, even though it would be virtual, with a student who's trapped here. An international student who couldn't get home, who's disconnected from family, maybe right now is the very moment that I could, I could reach out and say, how can I serve? How can I lead a discussion group? Maybe you, you think, I, I actually do have a little bit more time than I had before. I don't drive as far or as many places as I used to have to go. So, so maybe now is when you say, you know what? I'm going to invest my time and energy in learning a foreign language so that I can share the gospel with people who have not yet heard it so that more doors will be open to me, not for my own career advancement, but for the sake of God's kingdom. Maybe if your family is healthy enough that you would say, I want to serve right now this summer with Good Neighbors Home Repair and meet the needs of a family in, in desperate situation because the needs of our community aren't waiting for the pandemic to end. God's kingdom will not be slowed down and stopped. And so the the prophet comes and and tries to to shake us out of our complacency. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. But but worse, it's not just their complacency. Notice as we we go to verses 3 and 4 that it's their comfort that's being exposed. Why are they complacent? Yes, because it's going to be hard. It's going to cost them something. And they're not willing to do that. And so, so the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, verse 3. Now, verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? See, while the temple is in ruins, the people, they, yes, it's a difficult time, but they have time to decorate, to take wood and panel the inside of their homes. They have a, a level of luxury which, which should press them to say, you have no excuses. God's temple matters more than your comfort. And if God would speak these kind of harsh words to a people living on the edge of an empire in the midst of rubble, what would he say to us? 21st century Americans who live with, a, with an idea and ex, an extravagant luxury that most of the world would never have known. Yes, maybe there were a couple of people in the ancient world kings or pharaohs who knew luxury greater than you know. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the temple remains a ruin? Is it a time for you to spend all your time and energy on yourself when God's kingdom, when God's purposes matter? And think of the way that that our comfort is exposed. I, I, I am... I am always frustrated when somebody comes and interrupts me when I'm watching something. It doesn't matter if it's the first 10 minutes I've been watching or I've had this on all day. If you dare come talk to me, my comfort, my own convenience exposed. Our comfort is we pursue convenience and things for ourselves rather than the things of this world. We pursue the things of this world rather than sacrificially investing in the kingdom of God. And I don't mean merely giving money to the church for the mission of the church. I mean investing your life and your energy in the kingdom of God. Our comfort exposes we hoard resources for ourselves rather than use the resources God has given to meet the needs of other people. See, materialism is really easy to identify in other people. But in me, it's what I need. 
And so maybe we need to step into relationship with one another to say, hey, where do you see that I'm chasing after convenience more than I'm willing to love the kingdom of God? Maybe that's a question you can ask your small group or your community group, even as they gather online. See, the promise here, though, is that God will rebuild his house, the place where God will meet with his people, the place where they bring sacrifice, where forgiveness is extended to them. And so there's so many ways that we can see how how what, what Haggai is longing for is not merely the rebuilding of this physical temple, but the full fulfillment of the promises of God. We see this pointing us forward to Jesus, the Savior who comes, the one who will stand in those same temple courts and declare that he is the temple of God, that he is God dwelling with his people. He is the descendant of Zerubbabel, the rightful heir to David's throne. And this language that's used here, this language of paneled houses and this language of living in luxury versus living in the, the, versus building the temple of God is meant to remind us of the very promises of God. Yes, it comes as a word of judgment, but also a, a glimmer of hope and promise. Because if you turn with me to the, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, we, we, we jump back. We're in the year 520 in Haggai. We jump back to the year 1000, the time of David, the great king. And David, having now settled in Jerusalem and finished his own palace, now considers, wait, God still dwells in a tent, that tent that got dragged around through the desert, that tent that's been patched and repaired over the the centuries, and I'm living in great luxury. And so David, as he is convicted of his own complacency, is given the great promise no, he, David himself wouldn't, re, wouldn't build the temple. He was a man of war. His son, Solomon, would build the temple. But in the promises given through the prophet, we hear in 2 Samuel 7, the great and glorious promise. There, perhaps no other point of the Old Testament which reaches such heights as this passage which offers us the promise that God's kingdom lasts forever and that there is a king coming who will reign on David's throne forever. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, we read, After the king, David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. It's it's the same language that Haggai is going to use. You're not willing to rebuild God's house, and yet you're living in paneled houses. In this part of the world where where timber is expensive, it has to be imported. There aren't big enough trees. Your your houses are made out of stone. And yet you live in such luxury that you can live in a house of cedar, a paneled house. And so David determines to build a temple, which God says, no, your son will build it. But here in this passage, when when the word of God comes to David through the prophet Nathan, we read in verses 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel 7, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David, you want to build God's house. He's going to establish a house, a kingdom, which will last forever. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then as we see the great promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. 
Your throne will be established forever. And so the very same language is used here to bring condemnation in the book of Haggai. How dare you think that the Lord's house doesn't matter? And yet it pulls from such a rich tapestry that when you, when you look back, you see not only the judgment of God, but you see God's own provision in bringing judgment. Yes, he's the God who will do what is right, and so he will condemn us in our sin, but he is the God who then provides the sacrifice, the son of David who will reign on the throne forever. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Do you believe in this promise that God is offering you? True forgiveness through the death of God's own son. Or will you live for your own purposes, for your own pleasure? The Clark family lived in luxury in New York City. But they expected their staff to have their Santa Barbara estate ready for them with little notice. I mean, yes, they would have some notice because they would have to travel from New York to California. But they expected the house to be ready to live in, to move into the, the refrigerators stocked so that they could come whenever they were ready. But when Huguette's mother died and she inherited the mansion, she decided she was never going to go back. And so she changed the instructions that she gave to her staff. You don't have to keep food in the house. I'm never coming again. But I want you to maintain it in perfect condition, in first-class condition, as original condition as possible. Even though Huguette would never visit, she wanted it kept as a memory to her mother. An estate that is today worth about $85 million. Not to visit, just to own. Now we shake our heads at that kind of extravagance. And yet do we do the very same thing? Oh yeah, yeah, the numbers involved are not nearly as big. But I take the things that God has given and I hold on to them tightly for my own pleasure, for my own convenience. I hoard so that I won't have to worry. I chase after my own comfort. And yet we have a Savior who gave up everything for us. God provided in his temple for the sacrifices so that forgiveness could be offered. But more than that, God provided his own son, Jesus, our Savior, who gave his life for us. So no longer should we say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Instead, let's say now is the time for the king has come. Let me pray that God would apply this truth to our own hearts. Father in heaven, we... We admit that we want to quickly shrug off the, the weight of your word and move on to something more pleasant. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you wouldn't let us be settled until we find forgiveness. Lord, that you would not let us just shrug this aside, but that we would wrestle with the truth of your word. Lord, that we would be willing to look at our own hearts and lives and see where we need to invest in your kingdom and your purposes. Lord, for those who have listened today or will listen later as this message is shared, as our worship service is, is shared online, Lord, I pray that you would give faith to them to believe, that they would come confessing their sins and putting their trust in Jesus. Father, we come today with confidence because Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our rescuer. And so we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.